Ashley Messier. I'm Bella St. George. And I'm Regal Surya. Today we're going to start off our discussion on George Orwell and Aldous Huxley's um, famous books, 1984 and A Brave New World. Ashley, you want to start us off? Welcome to the Quarantine Quarrels, a podcast where we discuss all things argumentative. I'm Abigail Rothstein. Yeah, sure. So our first topic of discussion about the dystopian um, novels and uh, unit here is about who is susceptible to dystopias. So the first uh, discussion here we have about dystopias is the people who follow dystopias and the people who lead dystopias and what traits they kind of have that allow them to do so. So the susceptible people tend to be less educated, closed-minded, gullible people who tend to blindly follow policies that may not make sense to someone else who's a little more educated, knows what's going on. Um, And this is visible kind of in the real world and also in the dystopias. But in the dystopias, society makes people closed-minded and gullible, right? Yeah. So say in Brave New World, you have the conditioning, you have Soma, you have violent passion, sure, I guess that all this like stuff that the government gives people so they're content and they don't want to go against the government teaching so for say the sleep conditioning right everyone is told from like the moment that they're born that what like they're the, in the best place they can be and that like the the government's way of life is like the correct way yeah and actually if i might and it's all- add on to your point there um, I, uh-huh. I think it's really interesting drawing parallels between the conditioning that the society in a brave new world does and the ones that we get in public education in America. If you guys want to consider the fact that since we were young, we've been standing for a Pledge of Allegiance before we knew what it meant, right? Oh, I yeah, agree. Absolutely. Yeah, and that makes you kind of hesitant to stand out against maybe someone saying um, something like against yeah, criticism, Pledge of you Allegiance. Know? Yeah. You've been doing that your whole life, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think another really important point is um, making sure that people don't know that there's another way to conduct themselves or another way to live their lives, so that they don't question that the society that they're born into. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right. And then when you see John come over and see the society, his conditioning is different than the conditioning of everyone else in the society. Oh, and, and he sees for it, our listeners, and he hates it. For yeah. our listeners. John is the main character of A Brave New World. That he is. Yeah, so he comes over, and when he's talking with Mustafa Mann, the world controller, he wonders why everyone is just so content with this horrible world that he sees. And Mann replies, they're so conditioned they barely, they, that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, there's Soma, which is the drug that everyone takes when they're you know, upset or anything's going wrong. Yeah. So it's just this perfect world and everyone is content with it because they're told that they have to be content with it from a young age. Right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you have 1984, which um, people in 1984 are less educated and closed-minded because they're forced to be just like in um, Brave New World. Um, But they're not in the, but in 1984, by George Orwell, um, people can't really have their own thoughts and they're closed-minded, gullible, because they don't 
have the ability to have those thoughts because they will be, um, there's, the government uses fear to force people to just not. Yeah. And if I might add on to Ashley's point there, I think we can draw more parallels here to, again, American public school systems, right? Like the whole point of 1984, like Winston's whole job, you know, rewriting history, this is that never happened. I mean, all of us here are aware of the genocide of the natives, for example, but how much of that did we learn in school? I think the problem is that we learn most of the, most of those things later on in schooling. So the conditioning actually, uh, I'd argue, doesn't really happen. It, it definitely happens at a higher level of education, even up until secondary, post-secondary education. But most of it occurs, you know, in elementary and middle schools when children are more susceptible really to lies. It's really easy to lie to a child and have them believe you rather than lying, lying to a high schooler who can critically think or a college student who can critically think. And it's really interesting to see uh, the sort of grip that has on our world, but also how uh, if we look at 1984 and Brave New World, that sort of same grip of misinformation is actually occurring to adults as well. So um, it, it, that's another, that's a, something important to realize that um, the things that we see mainly in children nowadays, how we brainwash children in the United States is happening to adults in the Brave New World and happening to adults in 1984, showing just how pervasive uh, brainwashing can be if it gets out of hand. Yeah, great point, Rogal. Right. I definitely agree. And also, but I think that, that, oh, sorry, you can go, Bella. And also the fact that um, history, both in um, these dystopian novels and uh, the history that we read, is told through one lens. So you only get to see one perspective, and it makes it a lot harder to form your own opinions if you're only given one um, account of what's happened. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that that one account you get that happened is what the government that wants you to follow it wants you to hear. Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's go back to um, discussing how the government controls people in 1984. Um, one of the main reasons, or one of the main methods they use to control people is language. And what they're trying to do, um, obviously it doesn't happen quite in this book, but it they um, make a prediction in the future that they're going to start phasing out like, everyday language and move over to this new um, language called Newspeak. So the whole aim of Newspeak is make thought crime impossible. Um, because, as Newspeak says, they're going to phase out any possible words that could allow you to have a discretion from what the government wants you to think. So this is, I think, a perfect example of a dystopian government just absolutely controlling the way people think so that they only follow the government. Right? All right. And if you want to talk about... All right, yeah. And, I mean, going off of that, you can't have a susceptible society if you don't have leaders for them to follow, you know? Like, you can't just tell a gullible person something and just leave it. You have to have somebody completely like making like, like the whole um, programming and um, stuff in a brave new world and the conditioning, you need to be constantly reminding them of this. Therefore you need a leader. And so we're going to talk about the traits necessary for a leader of this sort of dystopian world. Yeah. So the leaders that you see in both um, brave new world and 1984, they both seem to be, or the main one in, uh, Brave New World, we see Mustafa Mond, and then we see um, O'Brien, sorry, in 1984. And they both kind of seem to be self-aware of their own indiscretions. Like, they both kind of know, and you can tell, like, they're intelligent people. They both know what they're doing isn't morally right, but they feel that what they're doing is for the greater good for the majority of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, yeah, and, like, going off of Ashley's point, like, the whole point of Orwell and um, 
Huxley was they wanted to warn us, you know, about futures and about even things that they had seen. So, like, if we want to bring it all the way back to the mid-1900s when we had all these dictators rising to power, the way they managed to do this was by feeding in to the hate that they knew that the people who were following them had. Like, the reason that Hitler rose to power was because of Germany's anger at what had happened at the end of World War One and their hatred and their need to blame somebody for their issues, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that actually segues beautifully into my point, which is about uh, the sort of racial and class hierarchies in Brave New World and uh, 1984. So in bo both of the novels share a theme of rigid social hierarchy, uh, more clearly uh, explained in Brave New World, but still very evident in 1984. And um, this rigidity and division of class structures is integral to the power of the controlling state. And there's actually a really interesting idea about this that Foucault talked about called biopower. Biopower is, oh, the, really? yeah, biopower is the idea that racism, internal division, and exclusion are vital tools used by totalitarian states to hold power. Uh, if we're looking at examples of biopower in 1984, uh, we first have to look at the class structure in 1984. There's basically three classes in the novel, which is the inner party, the outer party, and the proles. Uh, the inner party is sort of, the, sort of the controlling state. The outer party is sort of um, how we would think of upper middle class. And then the proles were about 80% of the population and they were everyone else. Uh, these three classes were very deeply divided. Uh, if we look at, if we look at uh, examples from the novel, it's clear to see that the inner party holds the most power. And they use a lot of that power to not actually control the proles, but to control the outer party. Uh, they feed them propaganda. They actually force them to make propaganda. And uh, they basically control almost every aspect of their lives through telescreens, you know, making sure that they don't mess up or say anything anti-party. And in the novel, it's clear that the activities of the proles are meaningless. So for, we can very easily regiment these three uh, classes by how much what they do matters. What the proles do does not matter at all. What the outer parties, like what the outer party is able to do is strictly controlled by the inner party. And what the inner party does is everything relevant to the society. So it's this yeah. it's a situation where two percent of society is controlling all economic, social and political aspects of the entire entire, you know, 100 percent of the population, which is inherently authoritarian. And that um, sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> it doesn't well, matter. it's also important to note that um, it's obviously very, very, very um, apt, easy and very clear to make uh, specific similar find specific similarities between 1984 and the world we have today. But it's important to notice that uh, Orwell wasn't strictly writing as a fear of the future. He's also sort of lamenting about things that have already happened and not wanting them to progress and get even worse. So if we're looking at um, yeah. leaders around that time, they, they draw very similar parallels to the ones now. And I think that's the point that Orwell is trying to make. Orwell, I don't think he was, um, in my opinion, I don't think he was warning about the future as much as he was warning about the past for future generations to know of the past in a, a sort of less historical context, but a more philosophical context. Yeah, exactly. And if I may add on to that regard, mm -hmm. I think that Orwell was probably very concerned with the whole, like, not repeating the past, like you said. Exactly. And I think that if we've seen throughout history, like, the way authoritarian governments rise, and even ones that are on the verge of becoming authoritarian, it's like you said, the whole idea that racism and division and stuff are tools, they latch on to people's hate. Like, you don't control people by talking about something they love you control them by talking about something they hate like illegal immigrants or the jewish population or all of these sort of things you know yeah and this is um to tie it into current events this is extremely relevant to what's going on in poland today 
Uh, if we look at what's going yeah. on in Poland, they're protesting, you know, almost constantly because the uh, the leading party, a right wing party called Law and Justice, you know, a loose translation from Polish, uh, that party is called Law and Justice. They have been marginalizing and dividing people in order to gain power. That sort of idea of folk cults biopower, where racism, internal division and exclusion are vital tools. Uh, if we look at how what Poland's doing is Poland is using the Poland's leading right wing party is using their political power to divide people by race, sex, gender, sexual orientation. And by, by doing that, they're actually inherently giving themselves power because a divided populace is not a populace that can uh, like, what is it like together? We are. Against yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. to put it very um, uh, to put it very simply, apes together strong from Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if everyone... <laughs> Good quote. Yeah, it's the only one that <laughs> yeah, came to yeah. mind. But, um... maybe, we can balance, maybe we can balance that out from like a quote from one of our books. Yeah, maybe. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, um, for a quote from one of our books, if we have uh, from 1984, a quote that Orwell wrote was, that, Winston reflected, might have almost been a transcription from one of the party textbooks. The party claimed, of course, to have liberated the proles from bondage, but simultaneously, true to the principles of doublethink, the party thought that the proles were natural inferiors who must be kept in subjection, like animals, by the application of a few simple rules. The, this quote that Orwell wrote yeah. very clearly shows how the proles are clearly regimented from the inner and outer party. And yeah, that division is used to keep them in subjection, like animals, by the application of a few simple rules by the state. And so it, it's, it, yeah. it's really uh, interesting to see how Foucault's idea of biopower and like, you know, dividing people for power... Uh, manifest itself in 1984 without ever being mentioned by name yeah and i think that's definitely something to think about and now we're going to go on to an ad break before going to our <laughs> next portion <laughs> today's episode is sponsored by violent passion surrogates ever feel the need to just let loose boy do we have things for you anytime your emotions get too much to handle or you realize you're having emotions at all Book a violent passion surrogate. Contact Mustafa Mon for more details. And we're back. Rakav, do you want to keep going with your point there? So yeah, I was talking about biopower right before the break, which is the idea that division gives power to an, author to an authoritarian state. So if we look at Brave New World, they have very clear divisions through their caste system. You know, the alpha, betas, gammas, data, deltas, epsilons. Uh, and they're very clearly separated both visually and through societal norms in the novel. Like for example, the alphas and betas um, you know, they get around using helicopters and the lower caste have to use the monorail. And the upper caste get to live in houses and the lower caste live in barracks, stuff like that. Uh, and then also the colors that they wear, it's very clearly regimented. And um, if we look at how that manifests itself in the, no in, in the novel, almost every single time an individual or group of people are referenced in the novel, they're always talked about given their, uh, they're always talked about and referred to by their caste, nationality, race, or their physical characteristics. Uh, if we look at uh, mm -hmm. on page 50 of Brave New World, um, uh, someone is described as a small simian creature dressed in the black tunic of an epsilon minus semi moron. So if we look at this and we deconstruct this, they're talking <laughs> about a lot. They're calling they're using physical, visual characteristics such as small and simian and then using their cast uh, epsilon minus to describe them. And it's very clear from those words and also contextual clues in this part of the novel that they are talking down upon this person right it's it's very um it's very interesting how in brave new world this sort of division 
manifests itself and gives it gives the uh, controlling state in Mustafa Amand uh, a lot of power. Like this division and sort of regimenting mm-hmm. people gives all gives um gives uh gives like the controlling state a lot of power. And um, Bella, I believe you have an important point on how the caste system functions in these novels. Yeah, I, I think it was important to know um, everyone's acceptance of this caste system oh, and yeah. its parallels to today's society. Because we know that there is a caste system that exists in the United States. There's the lower, the middle, and the upper class. And although we have this um, idea of the American dream that anyone can become anything they want, um, as long as they work hard enough, it's very difficult to actually do so in practice. And um, yeah, and um, actually in The Great Gatsby, this that book talks about it a lot. I know that's not what we're supposed to be talking about right literature now. Literature is literature. Yeah, yeah we've got to bring it back to Gatsby. You always got to bring it back. <laughs> yeah, and um, I guess in The Great Gatsby, if we want to talk about it, <laughs> Um, there are a lot of characters there that accept their place and don't even try to move up. Um, and I think that that has a lot of parallels to Brave New World and 1984. The people in those books know their place and they don't even try to um, move into a higher caste because they know it's impossible. Yeah, and that talks about an even yeah. larger concept right. where people aren't even afraid to move out of their caste but are afraid to, in 1984 especially, are afraid to rebel against those systems that exist in the first place. Like, we look at what happened to Winston, right? He was brought to Room 101. He was never Mm -hmm. the same after that, right? And we look through the torture he went through, like rebelling against, or not even rebelling, like acting in deferral against the the authoritarian state uh, just sort of always leads to bad things. And people are conditioned to know that. Even if they're controlled by fear, they're still controlled. Like, it's obviously incredibly important to know that a lot of people accept their fate and that's what sort of keeps them down but control is control even if you don't know you're being controlled you're still being controlled and like the the people who accept their cast Mm -hmm. don't know they're being controlled and the people like winston who know they're being controlled and still have to deal with that are still just as controlled as those who aren't aware of the fact that they are being controlled i feel like i use the word control a lot but you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they willing they willingly or unwillingly accept their place yeah, exactly. whether they feel better or right. not consciously and, or subconsciously Raghav I also think it's very important for your point on biopower bio used in um, Brave New World is that people aren't like born and then they like pick a cast or they're assigned one people are literally created to be in yep. their casts I guess you could say in um, 1984 they knew, I do know that they mentioned like people can like move up or down, but it's like yeah. unheard of. But like as like in Brave New World, like I think they said they like put alcohol in the veins of like some of the younger or the, sorry the lower cast so that they're like not as smart as the other cast. So it is so like ingrained in society, and there's no way to. Break One thing it. I found. Oh, yeah, and it it like, really does. Right, sorry, <laughs> it really does like bring back parallels to our world. Like when we talk about like. Um, drug issues in lower income neighborhoods and higher policing and stuff it's all there to make sure that people unfortunately primarily people of color can't move up in the society that was built literally to bring them down you know like just because we're not being like injected with stuff since birth I guess we kind of are but like not not in the way that they are (laughs) um it doesn't mean that we're not being forced to stay where we are, you know, like I, like somebody who comes from a lower class neighborhood with parents who did not get as good of an education or stuff, 
has a less likely chance of going to higher education. So that's just the way the society is built, which isn't right. Of yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why it's really important to read these books because I feel like if more people read them, we would have more of an understanding of our own society and the fact that it is very similar to the dystopian societies in the novel. And maybe if we were more aware of that, we would do more to try a lot and of a lot it. of critics yeah, of maybe. 1984 and Brave New World claim that uh, when we compare these novels to the real world, that there's a false equivalency that we are, uh, you know, uh, making an equivalence between Room 101 and bankruptcy. You know, like, and people say, oh, there's no way that can ever be comparable. You know, uh, the United States government isn't torturing anyone. But if we if we look at, you know, <laughs> you, know you know, that's what people say. Obviously, historical evidence begs to differ. But if we look at if, if we look at how oppression works, oppression doesn't always mean the government controls you and takes your things. A lot of people assume that that's what Brave New World in 1984 are arguing against. But no, they're really, you know, arguments against authoritarianism, you know, this control by the state. And the way in the United States, the way the state controls us isn't through, you know, as direct of a mean as it is in 1984 or as direct of a mean as it is in Brave New World. It's through money. If we look, we always talk yeah. about oppression, like happening to, you know, people of color and like, you know, immigrants and stuff like that. And the common denominator there is common denominator there for the most part is income. What, what happens is people of color yeah, and immigrants absolutely. are forced to live in low income lives and in low income neighborhoods. It's not always like it is obviously all the time about the color of someone's skin and like someone's gender and sexual orientation. But the underlying cause is income. If you don't have a lot of money, you're if you don't have a lot of money, it's harder to succeed. And if you're a person of color, it's hard to have a lot of money. That's that's what's going on. And if you're a woman, it's yeah, hard to get the same amount of money as a man. And so yeah, a lot yeah. of it's about income. Yeah. That paradox is exactly that paradox is exactly why it's so hard to change this system. So I think we should probably mm-hmm. move on to our next um, point of discussion, which is on the really clear gender hierarchies that exist <laughs> in both of these books. So I think that just to clarify before, we know what time period these books were written in, but we also know that both of the authors claimed that women were essentially equal in their societies. But when reading the books, it's so obvious <laughs> that the author's feelings about women come come across very strongly, which kind of makes it makes it a little uncomfortable to be reading about these heroes. Well, I say heroes in quotes, like Winston. He's like written to be the person we follow through the book. And hear them talk about women in these things. So, for instance, Julia in 1984 is like the love interest of Winston. And so there's a quote when she is talking to him and she says, tell me, what did you think of me that day I gave you that note? Um, and Winston uh, says, I hated the sight of you, he said. I wanted to rape you and then murder you afterwards. Two weeks ago, I thought seriously of smashing your head in with a cobblestone. <laughs> so I think anyone nowadays would be a little appalled to read that. And I know for me, if somebody so. said that to me, I wouldn't take it as a compliment. <laughs> but Julia, Julia does. Julia, exactly. Julia yeah. does, which I think just shows the disparity between these authors and their writings of men like Winston and John as these people who are above it and they're like they can think for themselves but in the women's case they absolutely cannot the only reason Julia is there is to be a sex object for Winston and to provide a to provide a contrast to his wanting to break free because he thinks it's morally wrong and her wanting to break free because 
she wants to have sex with people like that's kind of it you know and so i mean there's a lot of literature online like if you read it and stuff that argues that julia's existence in the book isn't actually or well like kind of being gross towards women <laughs> but the fact is that you have to consider when winston is talking about the fact that he wants to rape her and smash her head in with a cobblestone yeah in a way it's the conditioning of the state but do we see any other examples in which Winston says this about anybody else? No, especially not towards another man of the status. The only differing factor between him and Julia, they're both from the outer party, they both work like similar areas, is that she's a woman. And so the way she's written, just, I don't know, like as a woman reading this, it makes me feel icky, you know? Yeah, and I'd like to think if a woman had written this book, you would not see anything really like similar. that. Similar to the way a lot of um, prominent Native American thinkers write about how Huxley wrote about the reservation. You know, it's like reading that, despite the point that Huxley may have been Mm -hmm. trying to make there, the literature is deeply uncomfortable to someone. It's almost like it's, you know, talking about them. And and, uh, a lot, for like a lot of this novel, like for actually for all of 1984, Julia is the only real female representation. And I believe, obviously, mm-hmm. I can't speak from a woman's perspective. I don't think that women were represented very well by Julia. No, <laughs> no yeah. definitely not. Yeah, and I like, feel like um, what happened was he tried to make her appear like he tried to make her appear like she had some power in the book because she had some control over her sexuality. But it was still just a way that she was being manipulated into thinking that she was... Um, getting away with breaking the rules when really they knew all about this and they were just letting her do what she wanted mm-hmm. until they ended yeah up. and i think it's and it I'm also sorry, no. doesn't sorry, it doesn't sit with me right the fact that winston's idea of taking control is thinking for himself but her <laughs> idea of control only has to be yeah. the body because obviously women should be allowed to do whatever they want with their body that's obvious i think mm-hmm. we all agree with that but the fact that she has no process and they even have conversations about it is she doesn't care if she just not free, free thinking. She just wants to be able to like have sex with people. And that, that just like the fact that he made it so that the only female character in the book was like the sex obsessed one. And he thought he was doing something with that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting point I found. I, I read this. Um, I read this paper from Notre Dame recently that argues that it's, it's a weird paper. I'm not saying I agree with this opinion. I don't I actually don't know if I agree with this opinion yet, but it says that Orwell's inclusion of sort of what we think of as like you know problematic character choices like julia and his inclusion and huxley's also inclusion of like the reservation system how bad it is isn't necessarily their own biases taking uh taking uh, manifesting in these stories but actually them trying to state that you know oppression of women and oppression of people of color are necessary in an authoritarian state i read this uh, i read this uh paper that actually talked very uh, like at much length about how when Orwell uh, makes Julia appear as a one-dimensional character of sex, he's not, uh, he's not, you know, commenting on the nature of women. He's commenting on the nature of the state. And the same way when Huxley talks about the reservation system and about the quote-unquote savages, he's not making, uh, he's not making a comment necessarily on, uh, you know, how do you, like, indigenous peoples. He's not making a comment on, you know, people who, people who are indigenous. He's making a comment on the state itself and the way it treats um how the way the state treats the reservation he's talking about how that's a characteristic of 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 the state and not of the people themselves and so um it would be really interesting to hear um your guys's thoughts on that on that major on that very prevailing argument i I think that they 
could be true, but also like given the time that these books were written, I feel like it there's a strong possibility that that's not what it was. <laughs> it's, all, yeah, it's all about yeah. it's like, a, it's like a believing. <laughs> Who are you gonna believe? Are you gonna believe that uh, Huxley and um, and Orwell were good people, or are you gonna believe that they just simply let their biases take advantage of their writing? Well, I mean, judging on the blatant mm -hmm. anti-Semitism in 1984, oh, which yeah. we don't have time to get into, <laughs> I think that, I, I don't know, because I agree that it could have been possible, and I think it's actually more likely for it to be possible on Huxley's, because mm -hmm. that was more of an outright yeah. satire than 1984, mm -hmm. but I think that in 1984, instead of, he only had one female character, which was the issue, I, one of the biggest issues, because if he had different characters showing different aspects of this, it would be a lot easier to catch on to, you know? Like, mm -hmm. if they all portrayed aspects that you were like, oh, that's them being controlled? Yeah, maybe. But since there's one, you know, that's kind of, like, the, the issue, you know, and, that's presented. Right. Did, yeah, if there was one woman in 1984 that was maybe more like Winston and actually <laughs> thought for herself and um, tried to be more active in going against their society instead of just being um, viewed as an object throughout the entire book, then maybe it would be more likely, but we don't have that. So no. it's kind of hard to tell. Do we even know if they allowed women in the upper party? No idea. I know Brave New World, there are no women in the um, alpha yep. cast, right? It's all uh, yeah, decisions, so. which mm -hmm. is like another issue <laughs> oh we love men who make decisions right that's always worked out for them like i've never think i've never i can never recall in a single decision yeah. made by a man that wasn't good that's a joke that's a joke <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we know you know disclaimer, disclaimer joke, joke. <laughs> yeah but that's a great point and like it's it's just the whole thing like they all the female characters like even Lenina is like Bernard is this in Brave New World Bernard is portrayed to have some semblance of free thought you know like even though he does he eventually succumbs to the you know the narcissism that comes with John's fame but he is still betrayed as having some semblance of free thought but Lenina a woman who has been with him like the entire book and has experienced all the almost all the things that he experienced in their journey to get John and like all that sort of stuff she is still portrayed as just being so like one dimensional and like mm -hmm. just focused and like addicted to soma and stuff it's like why like i get i know the reason is that these books were written a very long time ago but it just makes me a little frustrated that the only representation that we have of dystopian literature is with these kind of problematic aspects to them and they're never really discussed mm -hmm. you know and also yeah and i think it's sorry I can go ahead i think it's interesting that in um brave new world I know, I remember seeing somewhere there's this, like, test for, like, literature and movies trying to, like, see if it's, like, a yeah, feminist. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things is that is, is there a conversation between two female characters that's not about guys? <laughs> and the only time <laughs> we have conversation between female characters in um, Brave New World is between Lenina, and I forget her name is, but the person in, like, the changing room. And oh, yeah. they talk about guys the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> And I think another thing that you could consider is if um, there was a woman in these books that was portrayed to have the same um, thoughts as Winston or as Bernard and was like more re and rejected the ideas that society placed on them, would they be treated differently by other people in the book as a result oh, absolutely. of gender? Like um, Winston was seen as 
I guess he was kind of seen as a hero for trying to rise up against this, but I don't know if it would have been the same if it was Lenina or um, Julia that had done that. I doubt they would have been yeah, taken as seriously. Yeah, yeah, especially being taken, yeah, being taken seriously. Um, I think this whole discussion we're having about the like the authors yeah, and their fun. and you know their intentions when writing these characters, it, it can be boiled down to um, what like is white male supremacy a clear characteristic of an authoritarian state. <laughs> and if it is, are Huxley and yeah. Orwell commenting on that? Or are they commenting on the, on people's genders and people's racism itself, you know? I honestly, uh, as much as I want to believe that, you know, uh, Huxley and Orwell are, I want to believe, you know, obviously that everyone's a good person. I want to believe that they're good people and they're commenting on authoritarian states themselves, but I truly, I don't know. I, I really don't know if they're talking about the state yeah, I don't know. or if they're yeah. talking about people, the characteristics of women's uh, Jews and uh, people of color themselves. I, there's no way for me to know. I can't like, you know, uh, text Huxley and be like, D- do you actually hate people of color? Do you think people of color are uncivilized? <laughs> Let me know. I can't, I can't, you know, text him or I can't yeah. you know, talk to them and no one can anymore. I think they're both dead. Uh, I wouldn't know, but yeah, they're both definitely yeah. dead. They are so, definitely <laughs> both dead. I don't, it's definitely interesting to think about yeah. like their their intentions when they're writing about these uh yeah. problematic topics yeah, well yeah, i think yeah. and i think that's a great i think that's a great point to leave our listeners on you know like just to think about that like should we be when reading these books should we simply ignore the fact that all these problematic things in their intentions because it was written a long time ago or do we need to acknowledge these things while we read older literature as we are in a more modern more liberal society Yeah, I think it would be really important to um, think about these things in the context of the time they're written. But instead of just leaving them be, you have to use them as a stepping stone to become better than the society that that came before. I think that's the point of the books, too, is you read them and you realize... I don't want society to be like this anymore. It goes so back in the book, which I think is the it whole goes point. Back to our whole initial yeah. point of: Are these authors <laughs> warning about the past, or are they telling us to be wary of the future? Right. And so, I think that's a great way to just end yeah, it and end this podcast. Yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Thank you all. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Quarantine Quarrels is a one-time <laughs> podcast, but who knows if our ratings are good? It might happen more. That it might happen again. <laughs> Um, Thank you for listening. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode. Um, Yeah, I will see you all next time. Bye.